we're within a matter of weeks until you could make a movie in your basement that looks like a Marvel movie without anybody. Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with your host, Dr. Tony Huang. Today, I'm with Neil Mance. Neil, can you give a, a description of your background? Sure. I would probably be best described as a producer, although I have been a director and a writer and an actor in movies and TV shows, but I have more producing credits than the other ones. And over my career, I have moved through different uh, genres and mediums. I started as a news reporter when I was very young and then moved into directing and writing and producing and acting in feature films, and then into creating series television, where I've created uh, more than a dozen TV series. And, and then eventually I moved into artificial intelligence, augmented reality and virtual reality content creation. That was about uh, 2015. Very cool. What made you get into the creative arts? I had no other choice. I have no other skills in life other than to create things. <laughs> so it was get into the creative business or not eat, which by the way, I didn't eat for many years while in the creative businesses and I'm always fighting to be able to eat. So it's not like it's a secure job anyway, but it was a calling for me. I had no choice. Gotcha. You really stick into the, the starving artist like mentality, right? I had no choice. And again, every day for me, I wake up and it's a new day. There's nobody there to give me anything. So every day is start fresh. But yeah, I starved for many years. So yeah, I know the starving art story very well. Yeah, man, like you're definitely a hustler. So like you've worked your way up in that industry tremendously. Like you, you have, you're a five-time Emmy award-winning producer now, right? So what was it like winning your first Emmy? I was a teenager, so it was great. How, how yeah. old were you when you won I, I won it when I was 19. Wow won the National College Emmy, which was for a college student studying media, uh, it's like winning the Heisman Trophy. If you're a football student it, it, or athlete, it got me an immediate job at a professional level with a major news organization as a reporter. And it was, it was, A, it was special to have that title of Emmy winner at a really young age. But then it, more importantly, it was able to open doors for me would which get you in but again you got to succeed and you got to excel to to continue to stay in that room what did it feel like to win your fifth emmy is it like having like your fifth child where it's like oh i have another kid now as opposed to like the first time that you get a child where it's like you you like baby it and then as you get more and more kids you're like good luck to the rest of you guys yeah no it's the greatest thing ever come on i first of all the fact that i'm able to create things is for me, it's mind melting that I'm able to ha have a, a life where I can wake up and try and make new things happen and get excited about things on a daily basis. And every day is different. And, and, and an Emmy award or another award that I have received over the years is validation of the work that I did. So it's someone patting you on the back, which is great. We all want to get patted on the back. And I'm in a business where people don't come to me and pat me on the back. So that feels good. Because I'm in this isolated environment with my little company and my people, and we're all together. My wife is not saying, hey, Neil, you're great. That's just the opposite is what she's saying. You need to be better all the time. So to be able to be recognized in my industry, whether it's one time or a thousand times, is the greatest day of my life anytime that happens. Fantastic. So what made you want to get into the AI industry? when you've already, you're so successful in the like creative industry, 
Like it, yeah. it's because of like the hype that's around it, or do you see potential in deploying some type of AI solution into your workflow that makes like your creativity blossom more? What was the actual reason why you've pivoted now into the AI uh, sector? I, for me, it's two parts. And I, I think that the word you just brought up there, pivot, is a, is a really critical word that many people have looked at life in a negative term, like you're forced to pivot, like something made you do this against your will. Like pivoting is not a choice. My whole career has been a choice of pivots. I'll get to a point in some type of or medium or genre, and I will have it, it mastered it to some degree. And then I say, okay, I understand it. Do I want to do this forever? And the answer always is no. I don't want to do that same thing forever. And so in my mid-20s, after having won the college Emmy for news and having been a reporter for networks like ESPN, and then I was a producer for ABC in charge of the OJ Simpson criminal trial, I had played at the top level of news. I didn't need to do anymore because I understood it all. So then I moved into feature films and I, same thing, independent. I made my way up. You talk about working my way up, working your way up. It, it insinuates that I've worked in a system where I did a job and then I got promoted. I've never done that. I move right turn into feature films, maxed my credit cards, and then made successful projects that over years became successful, giving me credibility in the film world. And then once that kind of hit a point, I was like, okay, I want to start selling TV shows. And again, back to square one, right turn, start doing that, finding my way in and selling TV shows. And by 2010, I had been selling TV shows for nearly a decade, and I had done plenty of news, and I'd done a bunch of movies. And I was really starting to get nervous as we had seen Web 2.0 really expand to the point where YouTube was dominant, Facebook was dominant, Instagram was about to become something and hadn't been become, some, become something yet. Twitter was massive. And the democratization of content had happened globally in a short form basis on the internet. That's where we saw hundreds of millions of people create YouTube pages and other kinds of pages, TikTok now and, and Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. And so I could see that was going to have a, a direct impact on television and film where I had played for years. And I had already, like I said, mastered that. So I didn't feel a need to stay in that world, especially since, in my opinion, by 2010 or 11, cable would be collapsing within a matter of a decade, which it is right now. We're in the middle of watching it collapse. And, and so rather than stay there with the other producers I knew that were selling reality shows, I was like, see you, fellas, I'm moving on to the next thing, which at 2011 and 12 was not defined yet. But I knew I had seen two versions of the internet. I had seen web 1.0 where it was tethered to a wall. And I had seen 2.0 that allowed for engagement in media through Wi-Fi and a cell signal. And I knew we would get into a third version of the internet, which is the spatial web, a three-dimensional internet. Some people like to call it the metaverse. It's still just the internet. We will call it the internet at some point. We'll stop using that word because it's the moniker. But it's about three-dimensional media, which will be delivered and engaged with and often in times created via artificial intelligence. So in 2014, when Oculus, when uh, Facebook announced they bought Oculus, that was the day I said goodbye to TV as a real business and films. Although I made TV shows and movies, I moved all my efforts into XR, three-dimensional media and AI. And so I did not get in for the hype. I'm a decade before the hype. I'm way before the hype. So I got in and people said, you're crazy. You're way too early. 
don't do this. And I have been way too early in the space for a long time. But now as it's about to take off, I've got a decade of experience and I'm feeling pretty good about where I'm sitting right now. Yeah, I would say like the timing in terms of deploying technology is so crucial. If you're if you try to deploy technology before it's time, you're gonna you're gonna run out of money and you're gonna have that will die. Like I've seen a lot of companies do that. But I think right now we're at a time point where like it's perfect for people to get into the AI world to develop new, brand new, exciting stuff. I was I'd say based on what you just told me, that's very gutsy that you've you maxed out the credit cards to pursue your dreams. Like I, I wouldn't even dare do that. Like you're definitely like the top of the line badass, first off, to do that. And so I'm really interested. You're so you're you're known as like an augment reality pioneer. Like I would say that in in the in your specific field you are. So like how do you see augmented reality and AI changing like the landscape of ME, the media and entertainment business? Totally. It, it will be unrecognizable by 2028. 2028. You won't recognize this industry at all. If you're starting now in, in anything and you're not thinking about augmented reality, you're behind. The only question is how far behind do you want to be? But coming out today and saying, all right, I want to get into the television world and I want to sell anything in television. It's like, why not start a vaudeville show? In my opinion, you are in the stone ages. We are going to move to a world starting with Apple in a matter of in 2024 and then following it's just announced the other day by Samsung and Google and their partnership to create AR mixed reality glasses. We're going to enter a new world of spatial content, spatial computing, yes, but spatial content where you can have the content in your living room. That Kardashian show, you will be able to bring into your living room and see the fighting that they took had at that restaurant in your living room. And you will be able to go to that restaurant where the fight took place and put on your glasses and see it take place right where it took place at the restaurant. So the socialization of video content in the real world will change everything. We will no longer be hunched over. We will be sitting up right. We'll be looking at each other, recognizable through facial recognition. Your security and data is going to be very important to you. Right now, people are soft about it. They're going to get back on board with that, and that's going to be a big deal. But there will be no similarity to the world of consuming content today in four years that it is now, just the way we consume content is not the same as it was 15 years ago. There's no similarity to how we do it because we're all on a mobile phone now. 15 years ago, you were, no one was was consuming content on a mobile phone. So that, that 15 year time frame is going to be compressed into four. So what do you think about, about right now? Like in, in my opinion, Apple announced the, those VR goggles, but they're a little price prohibited. So like your average Joe won't be able to experience the AR. Do you think like the next step would be like some type of mass production where like the price will drop and, and it'll become more commonplace or what's like the next step in order to get AR in the hands of like the common people so that they can experience like this new style of being able to experience a new form of like entertainment? Let's just start with where we are now and Apple is launching this product. So let's just be, do, I like honesty. I'm always a big fan of honesty with myself in the marketplace and just looking at things and saying, does this make sense? Am I hopeful or am I early? Cause I'm preparing for a future that is inevitable. And I would rather take the time now and be there and be prepared, even though it may be 10, 12, 15 years off. That's how my approach has always been. Apple has announced that they're about to release a product that is a, a dual use augmented reality and virtual reality 
headset. It looks like a pair of ski goggles. They are releasing this in 2024. And let's do a slight analysis of the market. The other player in the market of significance is Facebook. And Zuckerberg's been there for a number of years, and he has spent tens of billions of dollars on immersive media, virtual reality. And he's got an augmented reality deal going right now with uh, Ray-Ban. He has been attacked at a level that is almost unimaginable from Wall Street and others in business saying that he's crazy and he's chasing a pipe dream and that the metaverse is not a thing and he's wasting money. And beyond that, there have been many other failed attempts in the XR space, XR meaning extended reality, Google Glass, which is over a decade old. It's commonly referred to as a massive failure. So people would think of Google as a failure. They would think of Facebook as a failure. Someone may have said, I used VR in 2015 and I vomited failure. Nobody's seen anything good. So Apple is coming to the market in a highly aggressive, angry environment with a product in this space that will be the most expensive product they've ever released at $3,500. They got to have something amazing. They would never, ever come to the market in this scenario unless it was phenomenal, like really phenomenal. And having been in this space for a long time, I understand the technologies that they're using and what they're saying they're going to do. And if they're even anywhere close to what they say, and based on the reviews I've read from people who have touched it, they have what they're supposed to have. So the first thing that they did is they're going to deliver. They will over-deliver on their product, but they will underserve in that very few people will get it, and that's going to be on purpose. They'll probably make about a million of them in the whole world, and that means people like me are going to be sleeping out to get them, and it will not hit the general public, nor is it intended to hit the general public, because they need people like me and other early adopters to get them to create the content that makes the apps, that makes people want to get it. And so if you remember the early app store for the phone, there would have been very little few apps there. Right now, I imagine that they'll be in the low thousands of apps when this thing launches. I will be there with an app on day one for my company, Crime Door. We have content in 3D where you can walk into actual murder scenes and exist the famous murder scenes as they were. They were rebuilt. And so for the true crime audience, which is quite large, that would be something that may be interesting. There's a lot of information in there. It's, it's a learning experience, historical time period there. And there'll be others. But over the next four years, till 2028, we will see cheaper and smaller versions coming to the market from everybody. And by the time you get to 2028, it will be the norm. Maybe someone in their 60s still fights it, but the teenagers are going to take it quick. Anyone in their 20s will be right behind them, and then people in their 30s and 40s, and then it'll just happen. So I expect the mass adoption won't begin until somewhere around 2026, which is two full years from now, and at the pace that AI is moving and what they're doing with technology, I don't think there's any reason that that's not going to be met. And then as you get smaller and smaller versions and more and more adoption and more people create apps that make amazing experience, it'll just happen at that timeline. And so I wanted to be there and be a part of it while it was happening. So for the viewers, can you explain what Crime Door is? Yeah, Crime Door is a mobile platform or a website, crimedoor.com. And my wife and I realized that 
while there's ESPN for sports and you go to Wall Street Journal for finance and you go to the Weather Channel for weather, there's no particular place that you go for crime news information. And true crime news is what is in shows like Dateline and 2020 and the podcasting industry is dominated by true crime. Television is dominated by crime in general. Globally, it's a subject that everybody knows. You don't have to explain a murder or missing persons to anybody in any culture. And so this is the most consumed media of all media in the history of time, but yet there was never a dedicated home base. And so we decided to build that. Now, the Crime Door platform, both app and mobile, is entirely operated by AI now. We rebuilt it on ChatGPT. And what it does is we have a series of categories at the top, just like any news platform you'd see. It says breaking news or celebrity or politics and, and international or, or violent crime or caught on camera. And if you tip you uh, click on any one of those tabs, you'll see a series of articles that are amongst the most popular on the internet. We've trained the chat GPT to go to the internet, look for the highest trending stories, find out consistencies between all of the stories, and then write its own original story. VRAR for like true crime telling. Okay, so that's really a separate component of the current platform now. So initially, we had built Crime Door in three years ago. This is how long I've been in a space. Three years ago, and in the it was in the mobile app, you could open up your phone and you could hit a specific crime, and then it would put a portal mark on the floor, and then you could open an augmented doorway and walk into a virtual scene on your phone where you're exploring the actual crime scene, which was based off of the original photographs, which we would rebuild in CG. That's and now that content we will port into the new Apple glasses. Very cool. That that kind of reminds me of I so I watch like a lot of American Horror Story and in it there's like a like murder house where you can walk in there and do a tour. That that reminds me exactly of what Crime Door is. That's very yes. Cool. yes. And American Horror Story, one of my oldest friends in LA, Naomi Grossman, she played the character Pinhead. Oh, very cool. Yeah, that's like my all-time favorite like horror anthology. I'm, I'm a big horror buff. Like everything that's on my movie collection and all my books are all horror. Yeah, too scary. Background about myself. <laughs> no, too much for me. Yeah, so that's really cool. So you built Crime Door based on the need that there wasn't any centralized like uh, crime entertainment. What do you see on the horizon that's next for you other than like crime? Are you thinking like more documentary style, like platforms that you're going to build in the future? Or are you going to go into a different genre other than crime? What's the next steps for you? Making content is, I'm just very limited with my time of making content because I've done it and there's really very few things that are interesting to me and I can make a buck on it, but not enough that I could retire. So I have to continuously innovate, pick them up with something bigger. So here's a bigger idea. You tell me if this is worth better than a cable TV show. So when I saw Pokemon Go, I saw an amazing engagement with people via augmented reality on a mobile phone. I could see that the AR, it allowed for a different understanding of the character because you were able to experience it and walk around it. So that leads to experiential learning. And I could see how powerful that was with the audience. While at the same time, I looked at that and I thought, this is a crime. Pokemon is encouraging people to enter private property where they're going to make money off of them. There's no scenario where you can go come on my property and set up a business and not tell me. 
In fact, in this country, I can shoot and kill you if you did such a thing. Uh, so the, the way they require the physical use of an actual real estate asset to activate a business, it doesn't matter if it's digital, I don't care about that. They require the real estate. And in every other scenario, you'd have to lease the space. Am I right? There'd be a contract, a negotiation. You'd give me an insurance certificate. We determine a safe area where you could do this. And they don't do any of that. They're just like, here we are. We're doing this thing. Don't pay any attention to us. And when we move ahead to a situation where there's AR glasses, whether it's in two years or six years or 10 years, it doesn't matter. Whenever you feel comfortable with it, there's going to be Grand Theft Auto on my property and more and much worse. And that just brings up dangers. Certainly slip and fall is an obvious one. We've seen that with Pokemon Go. But it's the commerce and the mischievousness that caught my eye as a real issue. And then I was it didn't take too much for me to make the leap that if you could have a Pokemon on my front lawn, you could take the side of my building or my house and turn it into a wrap for an advertisement, right? And who controls the rights to put an ad on my building? I should, right? Yeah, of course. In this current scenario, it doesn't work that way. Anybody would say, it's not there. It's just on the phone. It's not. It's tied to the building and it has an impression of being attached to the building. And the fact that you're looking at your phone or in the future where AR glasses and the internet is the norm, and we see messaging on buildings, if it says, this guy's bad, don't do business with him. Or if it has, if I'm Muslim and you got a beer out of my building, that's counter to my faith. You could see how this would suddenly be a real problem. And given that you and I see ads differently, and maybe we're looking at Instagram, you see an ad on one person's profile and I don't see an ad or we see different ads. Now in a real world scenario where we both activated Facebook, Facebook could sell an ad on a building limitless to endless people. Facebook knows they can't do that without permission. They know they have to get permission from the building owner. And the building owner won't need to get a permit from the city because it's layered on the internet. And because it's layered on the internet, somebody could look at that three-dimensional ad that's talking to them from the building and knows their name, and they could click on it and make a purchase, adding additional revenue for the property owner. So in 2016, when I identified this, I started calling property owners, big property owners, and explained to them that there was an, an initial issue with potential trespassing and other commerce violations through mobile games. But in the future, when augmented reality glasses become more common, there would need to be a marketplace where they could license their property to get the proper insurance certificates and protections and also be a determining factor as to what commerce or messaging, if any, they allow on their building. And I'm building that marketplace. And so I've been securing those rights for seven years now. Wow. I never really thought about ads being placed on VR glasses while you're walking around in public. Not VR, it, AR. Not VR, AR. Oh, a, a, sorry, AR glasses, right. This is the real world. Yeah, There's a yeah. separate thing that in VR, if you want to rebuild my building, you would need permission for me to do that because you're recreating it. But it's logical when you think about it, right? There's going to be digital overlays and where is Facebook going to put their ads? There's, you're no longer on the phone or the computer. They got to put them somewhere and it's not going to make sense for the human brain on the tree or the sidewalk. We're conditioned to allow to see media as a wallscape ad on a building. And so this will disrupt the entire outdoor billboard business to start with. They're going to be in real trouble. 
And you're not alone in not anticipating this. I, I haven't spoken with anybody who's been saying, oh, I'm on that. But it will all be driven by AI. And so I look at this company, it's called Digital Rights Management. I have a website, drm.la, and anybody could sign up. But I see it almost like a guy who went around in the 1980s anticipating a business of cell phones. And he said, you know what? You're going to need to have cell towers for cell phones to work. And he went to people who own land and buildings and said, I want to be your representative if this ever happens to become a thing. And then he packaged up those rights. He sold them. And that's now the most valuable REIT in America, American Tower, worth more than $100 billion. Wow, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. So you're prepping yourself up for when the AR ad companies are about to become real, when they actually materialize into the AR space. And then from there, you're able to capitalize on that platform that you've built. It's very I'll have, I'll have their permissions. So another way to think of me is ASCAP or BMI. I'm becoming the permission representative for the rights holder. Wow, that's very interesting. Like people license songs, they're going to need to license that building. Yeah, definitely. I, that you, I, I'd say you're you are a couple years ahead of your time. I I didn't even think about that type of thought process. That's really cool. So I, I'd say, um, do you think you you will actually get that uh, in the next couple of years? What's the time frame look? First, let me tell you that also the end game. It's not just buildings that's available. It will be people. So you could imagine certainly someone famous through AR and Facebook. If I looked at the Kardashians, they may have logos that are blinking on them in AR. The kid on the high school tennis team may say, hey, put some money on me. And so he's got blinking stuff on it. If you're a tall person or if you just look different in the real world, people will see you and therefore you're going to have more value for marketing. Do I think I will benefit? I, I already have rights to many very valuable and important pieces of land. I, I have relationships with properties that are on Las Vegas Boulevard, also very famous properties that you would know in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. And so in order for someone to use those buildings in any way, they're going to have to get permission from the building owner, and I will be there to help facilitate that for the building owner or eventually the individual. Cool. So speaking of VR, like you were the first to produce the Super Bowl in VR, right? Mm -hmm. Can you walk through like what were your initial thought process and like how did you pitch it and how did people receive like the VR and then like how did you like deploy that out uh, into production? Yeah. So this was, again, it started in 2014 when I was like, I'm going to move into the space. In 2015, I realized that from a university perspective, if your football program is an example at a university, and we used Oklahoma State University as the pilot program, you are limited to five visits from a student athlete. They can only go look at five schools. That's the NCAA rule. And maybe the person's a five-star athlete and they're looking at Michigan and Alabama and USC. And you can quickly see how OSU may not get a visit. And so I went to them and I said, I can create a, a VR experience where people could put the headset on at an AAU event in their hometown. And you just send the recruiter there and put it on their head. And not only could they have this campus-wide tour, but mom could, dad could, grandma could, the neighbor could. So suddenly you're going to get everybody excited about telling this kid to go to the school. And once I perfect, by the way, that won an Emmy award for technology. And once that was perfected, then I was able to go to other uh, groups and teams and leagues. I, I, I had been a partner in an MMA league in China that I founded with a couple other people. I had an ownership in an MMA league in China back in 2011 to 16. And because of that, I was invited to be a part of a 
group of other owners that would meet annually and talk about things that they should know in sports media. And some of them own domestic teams here in the U.S. And I became friends with an owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And then that led to me talking him into doing a pilot program with the Steelers. And then that got me deeper into the NFL. And then eventually I was able to pitch the Eagles about doing the, the entire Super Bowl run, the playoffs and the Super Bowl. And so we did that with the Eagles and it won the Clio, which is right here over my shoulder. That is what I want. Very cool. So I, I have so many questions. First off, how did you even get a government sanctioned like professional MMA league in China to begin with? Did you have to, were you like friends with somebody there that, that got you? Yeah. How did you, yeah. how were you able to get it? So it, it had started before me. There were these two guys that started the league. They'd been in, they were from Canada and they were in the garment business in uh, China and they loved MMA and they basically greased the right people over the course of a number of years. I think maybe four or five years, lots of dinners and things like that. And finally, they they found the champion inside the government that they had to find. And that person got excited about it and then issued the Minister of Sport for China, issued a permit to them exclusively. So the UFC was not allowed in China and still is not allowed in China. And part of our business plan was that we would crown the national champions of China. It would be a Chinese partnership that happened. We To this day, we've crowned the only national MMA champions of China, belt the whole nine yards, big live events. And a friend of mine was the ring doctor. He's an ER doctor from the US, but he's been work, had been working in China and he was just helping these guys out. And he knows my background in sports media and and we didn't touch on that, but I've been involved with my brother in producing the Olympics, and we have created uh, maybe, I don't know, seven or eight TV shows for ESPN and Fox Sports, and just, I was a reporter for ESPN, and we, we did the SP Awards, long background in sports media, lots of connections. And so my friend called and said, hey, you should try and help these guys because their production is not so great. And we came in, and we put a little bit of money into the company, and then we took over the production, and then we produced a reality show in English and Chinese, and we did live events and we did the championship. And, and so that's how we got into that space. Very cool. Neil over here, just kicking ass, man. I, I'm told that you hold a Guinness book of world records. Can you describe what that is that you, you were able I think to- I have, I think I have more than one. I'm not sure I'd have to check, but I definitely have one for most video horoscopes ever made. I did a deal with NBC universal to produce a bunch of video horoscopes and did 18,000 of them. Like, how do you, how do you even get on the Guinness Book of World Records. I don't know what the procedure is. Do you like call them up and say, hey, yeah. I want to break a world record? Can you yeah. bring one of your guys over to verify or they, do they verify it after it happens? Like what are the steps? Yeah, either. They either come and do it or after the fact if it's documented. In the case of the, the horoscopes, we pitched them. We said we have this unique thing, most video horoscopes, paid them a fee. They validated. I sent them the 18,000 videos. There's nothing like that anywhere. And, um, and so then they issued it and that's it. That's very cool, man. So being in Hollywood, like you, you obviously know about the writer strike that's happened. Can you describe on, from your point of view, like how Gen AI is affecting like people in Hollywood and cause I, I've been reading up on the news and it's like a lot of it is attributed to AI. They, they feel threatened about it. What's your take on uh, being on the inside of Hollywood? What's your take on like how AI is affecting like these writers? I think I should set it up by saying where I am as far as in Hollywood. 
I'm an entrepreneur. I, I don't work for anybody. I am a member of the Directors Guild. I am a member of the Producers Guild. I am a member of the Screen Actors Guild. If I wanted to, I could be a member of the Writers Guild. I understand the unions. I've been in the business since I was 10 years old. Uh, that, that said, I do my own things. And if my things line up with the guilds, so be it. If they don't, so be it. So I'm looking at this from, again, honesty. I look at it a very honest perspective of how it will, what decisions I will make and what do I think is going to happen to them. So this is my viewpoint. Like it or not, it is what I see based on my experience. And remember, I've been in the AI space for a decade, so I'm not new to this. And I've been an entrepreneur pivoting on purpose my whole life. With that said, I have an app, Crime Door, that doesn't have writers. It is creating its own content on its own. Yeah, they're in trouble. They're in a lot of trouble. And it can't be stopped. That's the thing that is frustrating to me to watch as a viewer of it all. I don't hire Writers Guild writers because I don't do Writers Guild content. It's not like I'm against the Writers Guild. I just don't play in that world of scripted TV. I had a scripted TV show on Showtime, which I wrote, but it was a non-union show because it was done as a license deal with me. It's going to uh, be bad for the way things are done now. And people don't like change. They want it to stay the same. But it's going to change. Remember the business that IBM had of typewriters and all the people who use typewriters? They're gone. Remember the business in the entertainment business and a, a giant business of VHS and DVDs that were sold or rented at local stores? Forget about Blockbuster. That The fact they didn't see digitization of video coming is comical. But no one's crying about the tens, hundreds of thousands of mom and pop video stores that went out of business. I've never heard anybody worry about that. We hear about the actors and the actors, they're concerned about being maybe turned into something through AI. What about the stuntman? That person's gone. You think that's going to impact the actor? The actor's going to say, make the stunt person AI. I don't even care about that person because no one's talking about those stunt people who, by the way, are usually in the guild. So it's really a everybody for themselves right now. And I'm watching people like not caring about others. And again, I'm doing what I have to do to survive. I create my content. I don't step on anybody's toes. Nobody's calling me and yelling at me. They don't care about me. But the flip side of this is other people can be like me now. Now you talk about I'm my propensity for risk and putting things on my credit card is ballsy. Yeah, I agree with you. But we're within a matter of weeks. 26 weeks, 50 weeks, 70 weeks until you could make a movie in your basement that looks like a Marvel movie without anybody. So that writer or that actor who has been sitting around waiting to get picked out of a lineup to get a job or hope somebody reads their screenplay, they can circumvent the whole system themselves. And I would rather see these other creators start to get on board with their possibilities of supercharging their career instead of complaining about what is inevitable, which is it is going to change and it's going to change dramatically. So stop fighting the old way because the old way is gone. It's just how quickly will it change and will you be the one who is an innovator or one who is disrupted? 
And I have a, a phrase that I always use for myself. Occasionally I say it to other people. But the phrase is, the person who says it can't be done had better watch out because they're about to get run over by the person doing it. And so there's a lot of people that are like, ah, you're not going to be able to do that. Or that's not for years and years. <laughs> Stop it. This thing is going to move at light speed and everyone will be disrupted. The only people who will not will be the innovators. And like we saw in the last 15 years with Web2, how it democratized the ability for anyone in the world with a cell phone and the internet to make content and maybe even become a superstar, we will see that same democratization happen. But instead of it being short form content, it will be long form content. It will be in feature films and television series. Yeah, I, I totally agree with the the direction that AI is headed towards. Like right now, today, if I wanted to go and mimic like an, an artist, I could just go out and there's like a database with isolated voices that you could just grab and then you could build a AI generated voice profile. And then you could script up a, like a song real quick on ChatGBT, sing that with your own natural voice and then have the AI replace your voice with a, like an artist's voice profile. And then you get yourself like a brand new mix. So like right now that is like doable. And in the future, I totally agree that like soon we're going to have av like video avatars of any actress or actor and be able to replace them on the set. And that'll dramatically reduce the costs for like Hollywood, like producers in order to develop like new net new content very fast without all the headaches of hiring all of the stunt coordinators, the actors, actresses that's coming very soon. And there's based on my readings, there, people are very protective of the old way. So that's why there's strikes, et cetera. Um, I got it. But there's a, a million people here that are impacted by this. There's 8 billion people on the planet that are going to work with this in different ways. And I always think about what we've seen out of previous content platforms. Like, What was the person doing who is currently an Instagram star or a TikTok star or a YouTube star? What were they doing the day before that platform came online or when they discovered it? Were they sitting in the basement thinking tomorrow Instagram becomes a thing and I'm going to be a star? They did not. Whatever this treatment was, the sophomore was, this experience was, it connected with their skills and then they were able to do something different. There are billions of people who could potentially find these new, which will be much easier to use software tools and then become content creators. And at minimum hundreds, uh, at least a minimum tens of millions will do that in the next four or five years. And meanwhile, if Hollywood isn't starting to adjust or the independent people in Hollywood aren't adjusted, they're just going to be displaced like they were by the internet already. Gotcha. So, uh, Neil, if I needed to get in touch with you, how would I do that? I have a website, neilmant.com, and I have a course there that is basically for entrepreneurs or for anyone who's trying to be successful in media or AR or AI or AR or VR. It's called How to Make It in the Entertainment Business. It's a 13-hour course. It's 144 videos. It's got quizzes and tests. And it's really the kind of things we've talked about, plus more granular stuff for people who are in the actors and writers and director world. And it's for those people who don't want to get disrupted and, or are doing something and they want to do it better. That's what it's about. Very cool. So what type of advice would you give to like budding entrepreneurs that are in the entertainment space and they want to get into that tech space based on your experience? Like how would you advise somebody like that? The first thing I would advise is to take my course. 
because that's literally why I created it. Because I get questions like that that say, what would you advise? And it's, I would talk to you for 13 hours. I'd say, these are all the things you got to know about. So I really would say that for a quick answer, I would say two things to, to consider. One is lose all a semblance of fear. There's no place for fear. You have to be relentless in your pursuit of excellence, whether that's calling anybody, knocking on doors, you better be making product and sizzle reels and MVPs that sell your product. The internet needs to say you're great. So you got to build that online presence. So you need to be relentless in putting a message out there that's for you and that, and you're, you have no fear whatsoever. And then coupled with that is patience. You are behind. There's no time for patience. You have to immediately light things up. There, you cannot wait another second because there's tens of thousands, if not millions of people, again, whether in Hollywood or not, that you don't see who are moving aggressively waiting for these things. And I'm, a, I'm an example in the AR space. I've been working for years waiting for this moment for Apple, and I feel confident that I'm going to do well because I'm so prepared. I'm not alone. There are other people like me that have been preparing and are ready. So the sooner you start realizing that 3D media is the future and start trying to understand that, the sooner you can jump to the front of the line because the TV world and the film world, that's the old days. We're past that. Don't even think about that. Do you have any like predictions on the upcoming 2024 year? What's going to be like the hot thing that's going to happen in like the media and entertainment uh, industry with this like a huge emergence of AI? Apple glasses, that's it. Everything else is going to be all kinds of tools. People are going to do stuff. You're going to have, you're going to be able to make things. It'll be really easy. But the, the thing that everyone has to understand and physically touch are these Apple glasses. There's, I think there will be an argument. My position now, I'm going to go on record. I think it will be the most important invention in history. Right now, I think we could all say it's the printing press. I think it'd be a pretty simple discussion on that. But I think this and spatial computing led by the Apple glasses will beat the printing press. It'll take a decade or so to look back at it and see that. But I think when we look back, that's what we're going to say. If I told you two months before the printing press was come out, like you better pay attention to this printing press idea or the internet. If I told you just before the internet, or I told you just before the cell phone or the iPhone was coming out, that would give you a head start. Would you have any Apple products? Oh, I'm exclusively Apple. Okay. So you got a phone? Got a phone, tablet, Apple, everything, right? Mac mini, every, everything, my entire ecosystem's all Apple. So I know how much like attention are you putting on these glasses? I have not because it's expensive. That's the only reason. What are you talking about, dude? How much money did you just describe to me? How much is your computer and your phone and your tablet and all that stuff? You are I, the example I, of a guy who's spending the money. of dollars, man. <laughs> okay. So this product is more important to them than those products. So just the company that you have already bought into, literally you've bought into, you have all your money into it. And you say to me with passion, I'm exclusively that, you need to know about their most important product ever. So for you, it should be mission critical to get your hands on it. Well noted, man. I'll keep my eye on it. Do you know when the release of the Apple, like VR glasses are going to be? Q1. And by the way, I have no... Apple stock, nor do I have any payment from Apple in any way. I'm just saying this is the most important thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thanks, Neil, for being on the podcast. And until next time, stay curious.